You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson. I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Joining me today is associate professor of English, uh, Nathan Gilmore from Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how are you today? I am doing pretty well. I've got one more week of classes to teach and then finals and then we go on into the summer. So are you doing, I can see that light at the end of that tunnel. Are you doing your two-week philosophy class again? Uh, this summer, I'm actually doing a two-week uh, ancient medieval lit course, and then this summer, I'm doing an online philosophy class. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Um, Nathan, if you don't know, is uh, the one of the heads of the Christian Humanist uh, Radio Network and, and the flagship epi- or show of uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast, and uh, Nathan has uh, agreed to join me today to talk about Oscar Romero. Um, I wanted to do something kind of that feels like May 1st and Oscar Romero and his associations with, uh, you know, sort of leftist politics, uh, which we're going to tease out and probably demonstrate that they're much more complicated than you probably think they are. Um, I felt like this is a really good opportunity to uh, to bring him into the conversation. And I, both of us really got to thank uh, Susanna Black and uh, Plow Publishing for actually sending us uh, the book that we're going to be talking about today. It's called The Scandal of Redemption, um, and it's basically by Oscar Romero. It's basically a collection of some of his radio addresses interspersed and punctuated by um, some of his diary entries from in the couple of years up before his assassination. And so um, thanks to uh, Plow Publishing for uh giving us advanced copies of this really wonderful book. It's a, it's a, a tiny little book. It's not that big and you can probably read it in a night or two. And I think you'll be astound, astounded by the kind of wisdom and uh, inspiration that it brings. Uh, and it's just kind of the vision um, that we get of, of Romero. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Romero and uh, to be uh, just to set him up for those of the listeners who don't know? Certainly he is a bishop in El Salvador in the latter half of the 20th century. And so Latin America, latter half of the 20th century, you're talking about the Cold War. Uh, So before we go much further, uh, let me just go ahead and say that whoever you think the heroes were in the Cold War, they were pretty much turds. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, American McCarthyites were terrible. Soviet communists were terrible. Chilean anti-communists, also terrible. Eastern European communists, really terrible. Uh, and El Salvador and anti-communists who are going to be, you know, to a large extent who we're talking about today, terrible. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the cold war was not a time for moral heroism. Uh, it was a time for moral compromise in the name of ideology. And honestly, that is one of the things that I drew most from this collection of homilies, Danny, is that Romero, despite the fact that people wanted to lump him in with the communists, had a lot to say against international communism precisely because it was ideological rather than personalist. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, we're going to be talking a fair bit about that distinction today. Um, you know, you, I'll, I'll let you have a swing, Danny. I mean, what is ideology when we're talking about the Cold War era? 
Well, I mean, in Romero's terms, I mean, he's he sees both like capitalism and the kind of that ideology and communism as both materialisms, right? I mean, he sort of mentions that um, throughout several of these homilies, and they're both then not centered on God, right? And so um, I think he uh, probably supports the the people that the communists of, of El Salvador were trying to liberate, right? And so he, that's why he gets sort of lumped in with this sort of communist discourse, largely through the, the means of liberation theology, um, which we have a question from a, a listener about that that we'll hit um, a little bit later. But we have this um, kind of ideological battle within the church even um, about the role of um, like political liberation in uh, the mission of the church, right? And Romero, like, tries to like oh I guess um, support and um, and and protect the same people that the the liberation theology people slash communists were uh, were trying to protect but he doesn't do so while buying into the materialist ideology he tries to do the same kind of political work from a you know a true like Catholicism like position a position of like Catholic faith and, and so um, he's really complicated in that way it's like everybody he's one of those figures that everybody wants to own right um, but they're owning a version of him right and not the wholeness of him and so I think that um, that's that's one thing that's interesting about the way he intersects with the ideologies at the time yeah that's about right and I would add to that that he also believes in an immortal soul which really does matter for one's politics because on the one hand uh, he is not willing to consider any human being or any human life collateral damage in this struggle. Ultimately, every soul is of infinite worth, and therefore any sacrifice of a human being, and he won't even call it sacrifice because that's a religious term, Right. Uh, any disposal, you know, that culture of disposability of a human being uh, is too much for Romero. He won't countenance it, but he also won't be satisfied with any kind of status quo that does not afford an absolute dignity to the people that live within that system. So again, uh, you know, there are elements that, you know, obviously, you know, based on his biography, which I'm sure we'll be touching on here in a little bit. And I think Danny's already said, you know, he was assassinated by uh, right wing anti-communist forces. Uh, They found him, you know, entirely too sympathetic to the communists because he would not give into the ideology of anti-communist, you know, uh, what later came to be called neoliberal politics. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, he also was not a spectacular ally to the Communist Party because, you know, like Danny said, their materialism certainly extended to worship of God. But the implication of that was that individual human beings were ultimately of a lesser worth than the progression of history. Yeah. And so, you know, the great historical movement might need to spill some blood and, you know, just tough stuff. Yeah. And Romero isn't having that. Yeah. Um, there's a really interesting intersection here. It's This is probably why Plow has chosen this uh, to publish uh, with, with some of the Bruderhof uh, philosophies. I, I was just the, – the Plow Publishing House has been sponsoring these uh, little events in Pittsburgh called um, City and Kingdom Pittsburgh. And uh, I went to one last night actually and we read um, a, in anticipation of that – a little book by Eberhard Arnold, who's one of their kind of founders, and uh, and it's called Why We Live in Community, and it, it's a lot of interesting ideological intersections with Romero, 
and one of which um, he explicitly says, Arnold, in that book, um, that we hold a lot of the same beliefs as this international communism, basically, but we don't uphold the kind of violent political um, outcomes in in uh, seeking the outcomes of that political belief, right? And so this is how we're different than that. In a lot of ways, that that early Bruderhof community, and I'm sure the contemporary one as well, um, shares a lot of the, I think, um, ideological middle ground that, uh, that, that Romero has. And I don't even know if I can call it middle ground. This isn't like a compromise between. No, this is a third thing. Yes. <laughs> this is not, this is not like sort of, I'm taking part of this and part of that. This is like looking at the same situation, coming to some of the same conclusions, but from an entirely different, um, ideology and a theology in this case. And, yeah. Right. And really it's an inversion of, you know, the Hegelian Marxist view of history, right? Yeah. I mean, for both of them, you know, Hegel famously in his philosophy of history said, you know, do not apply, do not apply a schoolboy mentality to Julius Caesar, right? Uh, if Caesar has to murder a few thousand Gauls in order to bring about the Roman Empire, that's what history demands. And then later on, Marx in some ways inverts that, you know, he says that ultimately the material conditions produce the idea structures, uh, but he basically agrees with Hegel that, you know, there is going to be a certain kind of inevitable political violence mm. uh, that comes with, you know, the revolutions that, you know, bring about the new, uh, uh, what are the conditions of production, but that's not the Marxist phrase. Uh, yeah. Derek Varn somewhere <laughs> is getting ready to email you, Danny. I'm sorry for that. Well, he'll be on the uh, show in a few weeks, actually. I have him scheduled uh, for All right, all right. Uh, but at any rate, you know, I mean, what Romero resists in both of those cases uh, is a tendency to regard the human being, uh, the particular personal human being, as somehow disposable in the face of those larger historical forces, right? For him, uh, we influence large structures for the sake of the person. We do not sacrifice the person for the sake of the large political movement. Right. Exactly, right? And so um, this is where he finds... I think a lot of people across political spectrums can find a lot to like about like you can make Romero say what you want him to say if you sort of selectively read That's him. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and yet if you read him as he's meant to be read, um, you're, you're going to ultimately be insulted by what he says. And, and let me just actually take a, uh, a passage from this book. Um, it's from the introduction, actually. Um, we have never preached violence except the violence of the love that led Christ to be nailed to a cross. We preach only the violence that we must each do to ourselves to overcome selfishness and to eliminate the cruel inequalities among us. This is not the violence of the sword, the violence of hatred. It is the violence of love and fraternity, the violence that chooses to beat weapons into sickles for work. So, I mean, obviously importing the term sickles, I mean, makes an association with communism, right? Um, oh, but, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but also there's something there that transcends, I mean, it's coming at the same question from a different angle, right? And, and therefore it's going to have an entirely different set of conclusions. Um, right. And in some ways, I mean, he is going to sound like uh, an evangelical anti-communist, right? I mean, you know, in one of his homilies, uh, and I'm trying to find it here quickly in my notes, uh, but the idea is, and I'll find it here in a moment, uh, that, you know, oh, here we are, it's in the homily called The Call. Uh, you know, he locates the roots of social sin in, quote, the heart of every person, close quote, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, that sounds, honestly, you know, a little bit like your, you know, standard... Um, 
libertarian evangelical who says, you know, you can't simply change social structures and bring justice in the world. It has to be a heart thing, to use the favorite phrase of Emanuel College undergrad. (laughs) Uh, But on the other hand, uh, he is insistent on that heart thing happening right freaking now, right? Yeah. Uh, So, you know, he says, we never will inflict violence on the other, but we will subject ourselves to violence in order to expose the injustice and the violence and the oppression that keeps people down, right? So uh, it is a heart thing to be sure, but it's not a matter of get baptized and then tweak slightly the way that you run your, you know, Fortune 500 company. It is, you know, once the heart changes and because the heart changes, uh, the logic that supports something like an international multinational company isn't going to be intelligible anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, nor is an international communism, right? I mean, there's sort of like this, uh, um, uh, there's room to offend everybody here. Um, and there's later on in a, a homily on uh, liberation, he actually pushes against this idea that, you know, we're only really out to save people from their sin. And the only reward that really matters then is after they die. Right. He, he uh, like immediately takes that on in kind of defending the idea of liberation against those people who are against liberation theology. And, and maybe let me preface this with uh, one of the listener questions that we got in advance of this um, by uh, Marcus Palamas, Palamas, excuse me, Marcus. Yeah, Palamas um, is how I was, I was always taught to say it, but okay. Marcus, if I'm saying that wrong, let me know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go to the Facebook page. Uh, Marcus uh, reached out to us via the Facebook page. Uh, if you like the Sectarian Review podcast face, Facebook page, these conversations go on, you know, for days and weeks sometimes afterwards. So if you have something to add to this conversation, that's a great place to do it. Uh, Marcus asked us to, um, it, he sent us this comment. It would be good to include the good in what he and others uh, in South America are doing, whilst also including the perspectives of those Catholics as uh, well as other Christians who critique, quote, liberation theology not in a crude manner, but those who have sensible concerns. Um, and I think that he's addressing that um, that critique of liberation theology, which from my understanding is it's kind of like a materialist version of Christianity, right? It underplays the role of personal sin um, and it's focused it, it, its emphasis is greatly ramped up on social justice and, and right certain versions of it, certain versions of it. And I mean, liberation theology, I mean, to say what does liberation theology think is something analogous to saying what does Christianity think? Yes. <laughs> the answer is, I mean, see volume three, uh, you know, so it's a giant discourse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there are certain versions of liberation theology, Danny, that are exactly doing what you what you're describing there, either completely ignoring the personal or even saying that, you know, the version of the personal that, um, you know, the sexual revolution gives us is basically the end goal of liberation theology, right? Yeah. And then they focus entirely on political structures. And honestly, those versions of it tend to assume the persistence of the nation state as sort of the center of moral activity. Yeah. When, you know, um, again, as, as my reading of Marx has it, uh, you know, the nation state is certainly a step along the way to whatever revolution brings. Uh, but, you know, whatever revolution is, it's probably going to step beyond that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, some of the critiques of liberation theology are valid when they are aimed at certain versions of that liberation theology, especially those, I'm going to be real honest, 
uh, that tend to turn a blind eye or even to rationalize the actions of Latin American communists and, you know, certain other folks when they are doing the sorts of things that the worst of the anti-communists are also doing. Uh, One thing that makes Romero stand out in that kind of a conversation is he refuses to give a blessing to communist violence against persons or anti-communist violence against persons. If you're pretending that you're ultimately doing this for the good of persons, but you have persons in torture chambers, (laughs) Romero's not going to have it, right? Whether you are communist, whether you're anti-communist, if you have torture chambers, you're no good. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, um, if your theology looks no, and I love the clash, but if your uh, theology looks no different than a clash record, um, then it's probably not Romero's theology, right? Um, they had the yeah, famous, that's about right. That's about right. The Sandinista and like, album. I, like I said, I mean, that's what makes him so fascinating because uh, he is so Catholic that there's times he sounds like, you know, a Billy Graham anti-communist. Yeah. And he's also so Catholic that sometimes he sounds like Herbert Marcuse. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, that that's what's glorious about him is that, yeah. you know, as you said at the outset, uh, there is no uh, position that he is unwilling to critique. I mean, his is a critical theology that goes all the way down. Uh, and, you know, I mean, if you are falling short of Jesus, as we all do, he's going to call you out on it while not pretending that he himself is the moral paragon. Right. No, he, he is always announcing his own sins, yes. his own shortcomings, his own cowardice. Uh, he is perfectly aware of those things, but I mean, the source of his moral critique uh, is not his own personal enlightenment by any means, but it is revelation in a very broad, robust sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, if some months back, I retweeted something that got me involved in a long Twitter conversation with um, Brett Chase, who's one of the listeners of our network, actually. Um, and um, it was something, uh, there was somebody, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, Broderick Greer, I think who it was. Um, he quote tweeted rather passive aggressively, Timothy Keller, who had some kind of very standard evangelical um, evasion of the political uh, for an emphasis on personal sin, right? And and Greer's, I think it was Broderick Greer, his um, response to Keller was something about, you know, we have to address political structures in order to, um, we can't just neglect these things. I got into a long conversation about that. And, and I feel like whatever I said about it was probably stupid um, during, that, during that Twitter conversation because it was on Twitter and because I said it. Um, but, but the, uh, uh, but Romero in his homily on liberation, I think um, really kind of iterates my position much more clearly than I could have at the time. The word liberation bothers many people, but it is the reality of Christ's redemption. Liberation does not only mean redemption after death so that people should just conform to the system while they're alive. No, liberation is redemption that is already beginning on this earth, right? And so I think he's articulating the position I was intending to make uh, at that time during that conversation. And uh, and Brett, if I if I was off the rails at that time, please forgive me. My, uh, you know, I've I've tried to be better on Twitter since then. And so, um, uh, but uh, but I think that that's the way that he kind of complicates a binary um, political position when it comes to this question of liberation theology versus um, personal sin theology. Right. And and so he, right for him, it's never versus that's the point. Right. I mean, you know, in that quote that you just read, I mean, the key words are only and beginning. Right. So, you know, it is not only about redemption after death. It still includes redemption after death. He insists on redemption after death. And in fact, I mean, in 
El Salvador in the 1970s, he preaches a lot of funerals, a yeah. lot of them victims of political violence. And so he does believe in redemption after death. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, this is Danny reminiscent of a conversation I had with a trip fuller of homebrew Christianity recently, you know, who said that, you know, it, it troubles him when people assume that he doesn't believe in the resurrection because he says, well, I mean, if you genuinely believe in a God that is just and a God that loves, then there's got to be some kind of accounting for those people who did die violently and who did die in acts of oppression and so on and so forth. Is there nothing for them other than, well, we'll get it better next time. He says, you know, if every human being has that infinite dignity, which Trip Fuller believes, by the way, listeners, um, then there's got to be something. And, you know, the name for that in Christian theology is resurrection, right? But then the other part of it is a redemption that is already beginning on the earth. And here's where, you know, the provisional character of that redemption as it appears on the earth becomes, again, a central focus for Romero, right? Because if this is an ultimate redemption, then it makes a certain degree of sense that if we have to kill a dozen people, or a few hundred, or a few thousand, if we have to torture the capitalism out of them, if we have to torture the communism out of them, then ultimately that's worthwhile because, you know, their individuality isn't worth as much as this ultimate salvation we're bringing. Romero, once again, I know I'm just hammering away on this drum, but I mean, this is what makes him interesting in the left, right, you know, squabble is that he's going to stand in judgment over left and right. He's going to say there is no scenario in which a justice that a human being devises is going to be worth more than that soul that you just tortured. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note of left, right. I mean, I think that he is interesting is that he is actually getting at a truly left, right debate. When we talk about left, right in America, I think people confuse centrist liberals with the left. Uh, and, and so you're know, like your MSNBC types, they consider them left wing <laughs> and they're totally not that like liberalism and conservatism are really not that different ideologically. Uh, they both come out of the and same likewise, traditions. We're talking about a right wing that has machine guns and torture chambers, not yeah. just Twitter accounts. Exactly. Right. And so, yeah, so he is actually like resituating the terms in the way that I'm comfortable with them. Uh, actually, when we talk about left and right um, and, and yeah. And so, and I guess one part of his biography that we should um, emphasize here, uh, lest we think that he was sort of out of step with the Catholic church, the Catholic church, I mean, there were elements at the time of people who considered him a rabble rouser, a communist sympathizer, one of these liberation theology guys, right? Um, and, and so he was controversial at the time. When he was named Archbishop of San Salvador, um, people on the left were actually upset because he had a very conservative um, reputation, right? He, he was right, aloof right. from these uh, these kinds of deba- debates. His friend uh, Rutilio Grande, a priest, uh, was murdered, uh, and that's really what activated him um, to be more um, upfront about the social and political and economic injustices in El Salvador at the time. And so in the ways that he was, quote unquote, radicalized, which is not radicalized for communism again, but radicalized in, in his you know application, his full application of Catholic theology, um, it, it comes out of that really moment. Um, and the Catholic Church is kind of 
fully endorsed him to the point where in 2015, um, forgive me if I'm going to mispronounce it, beatification. Uh, he, he, nope, that's that's right. He achieved a beatification, which is related to the beatitudes and blessed be. So now his, you know, according to Catholic um, teaching, he is able to intercede for people from heaven, right? Um, and so, right, right, yeah. And so, um, and then he just within the last month or two um, w- went over the hurdles for being canonized. And so sometimes uh, later, sometime later this year, or maybe early next year, there's going to be an official canonization. He will be St. Oscar. Right. And, and so the Catholic church does not consider his politics as, um, um, as out of line. Right. And so lest we're, you think we're trying to um, make excuses for his, um, <laughs> his, his orthodoxy. Uh, the Catholic church is fully bought into it at this point as well. Right. And again, I mean, this is because the Catholic Church has that strong personalism as, as at its core. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I mean, this is a medieval notion. Uh, I'm always, you know, the cheerleader for the medieval on this network. Oh, I yeah. realize me and David Grubbs. <laughs> right. That's why we uh, love you. But I mean, you know, this medieval notion of the infinite dignity of the human soul. Right. Right. Uh, and again, you know, this is what keeps him from being a simple one dimensional ally of the communists. It's also what keeps him from being, you know, a simple one-dimensional ally of the anti-communists, right? So, I mean, you know, one of the things, Danny, that I I really kind of trace through this book is that, you know, when it comes to government, you know, a lot of, you know, again, you know, within our American context, uh, the rules of engagement on social media are that you never acknowledge the sins of your own side. Right. And if you do, then you've lost. Yes. Uh, And, I mean, he just wasn't interested in that as it turns out it came around before Twitter. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and you know, the sins that he sees on the large government scale on one end are inaction, right? Just allowing things to continue in a way that grinds the poor into the ground. He has an infinite concern for the campesinos, the, you know, the coffee farmers, uh, you know, with the poor, with the beggars, so on and so forth, you know, so that if a government is not actively, providing help, real material help to the poor, then that is a sin of the government. But it's also a sin of the government uh, to institute tyranny in order to do that, right? Right. So again, you know, uh, he eludes uh, a lot of the tendencies that you see in 20th century political theory, right? On the one hand, to say that, you know, the pagan gods called supply and demand should be ruling the whole world. But then also... The, you know, I guess the neo-pagan idea that history with a capital H demands some blood sacrifices to move ahead. Yeah. Uh, he, he isn't here in any of those. The only God he acknowledges is the father of Jesus Christ and the son and the spirit. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as it turns out, that God, which is three in one, uh, only acknowledges the human being as the image of God. History is not the image of God. Supply is certainly not the image of God. And demand sure ain't. Uh, only the human being can be called the, you know, man and woman. He created them in the image of God. He created them. Yeah. I think that's Genesis, right, Danny? Yeah. Um, somewhere. Um, 
you're the theologian here. So, um. uh, yeah, that's Genesis one. Sorry, I, I, I was being uh, facetious I, there. So was I. I knew that one actually. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, you're totally right, right? And so this is where he he displays Christian virtues. I wanted to um, your most recent episode. You did this uh, episode about the Atlantic article about evangelicalism and Trump. Yeah, by uh, George W. Bush's you know former speechwriter Michael Gerson. Yeah, you guys had a really great um, conversation in general, but one thing that stands out at this juncture of this conversation is I think Michael was saying something about the virtues that Trump has, right? And they're not in any way recognizably Christian virtues. They're the virtues of like a pagan um, sort of barbarian strongman, right? Um, like loyalty to right, family, right. you know, and, uh, and, and power and strength and not showing weakness and all these sorts of things. And that's a clear inversion of what you're describing here, the virtues that, um, that Romero is displaying with his life and his death, right? Um, is this um, utterly Christian set of virtues about, you know, uh, weakness and diminishing the self in order to support the, the others. And, and, and that is something that, um, you know, I think is important to kind of just note in, in distinction with our current political moment. Right. And I mean, as much as I hate to bring up the Access Hollywood tapes, uh, which I, I'll admit, I mean, uh, and I think I've admitted this on the air before, Danny, but I mean, when those tapes dropped, that's when I started predicting that Trump was going to get less than 30 percent of the vote. Yeah. And I was wrong uh, because apparently, you know, that, you know, just kind of raw Nietzschean power worship uh, is not, you know, a disqualifier in American politics, which terrifies me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, in that tape and, you know, listeners, if you're not aware of it, uh, it's all over the internet. I mean, you can even find a YouTube clip where someone dubbed that audio over the Disney World Hall of Presidents, Donald Trump <laughs> robot. Um, but, you know, the most terrifying line for me is not necessarily the descriptions of the individual acts of sexual assault, although those are terrifying. Yeah. Even worse than that is where he says, just matter of factly, if you're rich, they'll let you do anything. Yeah. And I mean, that right there is the Nietzschean ethos, right? And again, you know, that's not necessarily what uh, Romero is opposing here. But in our own day, it is that, you know, Nietzschean power worship that might be the analogous ideology that, you know, a truly Christian theology has to resist in our moment. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Um, it later in. And so we're not living in a communist regime, right? We're living in another, in a, in a hyper, a neoliberal uh, sort of capitalist regime. And right, so, right. And yet the oppression that um, Romero is describing feels real to us here. And there is a passage here. In well, the, and also we should remember that, I mean, this neo-capitalist regime that we inhabit is built on the backs of campesinos and other workers in other parts of the world. Yes. I mean, that's that's a reality that unfortunately you know, the obsession with Donald Trump's Twitter feed sometimes obscures yeah. is that, you know, everything that we do, whether we think that it's good or bad is always built on sweatshops and, you know, migrant labor and, you know, all of these things that, you know, Romero was actually on the ground dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. He was like dealing with the, the point of extraction of resources and oppression upon human beings um, that much of our civilization um, has been built on. And at the time, the Americans were supporting this oppressive regime. Right. Um, and, and Romero actually contacted Jimmy Carter to 
complain uh, basically about um, the American support of this right wing regime that is there to support American economic interests. Right. So all of that oppression, all of those murders, 75,000 murders in El Salvador at the time were to support American business interests. Right. On one level. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I think a more complex reality, a, a more complex view of reality, pardon me, is usually more adequate than a more simplistic one. It was absolutely for the sake of economic advantage. It was also ideological. And this is where, you know, the anti-communist ideology of American politics I see, yeah. was such that, you know, those 75,000 people, we might, you know, be sad that, you know, they had to die. Note they had to die there. Yeah. But ultimately, resisting communism is a cause that is greater than the individual life. Yeah. So both of those realities are real, right? Yes. And I mean, you know. Uh, what, what was it? 30 years later, you know, I mean, that, that was the part that I tried so hard to get through my, you know, my anti George W. Bush friends heads is that, you know, the terrifying thing about Dick Cheney was not that he was personally profiting from Halliburton's involvement in Iraq, but that he actually believed that the advancement of neoliberal capitalism in the Middle East was worth dropping bombs on children. Yeah. Yes. The, the cause is bigger than the human life. Yeah. And that's a great transition in, into this other section from the liberation homily. I guess that's the one that I wrote the most notes on um, because, I mean, that's he's speaking directly at his critics there. Um, and, and I think, Oh, sure, sure. And so it's a, it's a really interesting one. And these are all quite short. These are meant to be radio addresses that are for um, – the, the peasantry. I mean, this was basically, um, this was for, um, the common person at the time. Um, and, and also you should understand if you're an evangelical or a Presbyterian, a homily in a mass is a long one. If it goes 15 minutes. Yes. Yeah. They're very, they're <laughs> quite short. Yeah. And it's sort of like little micro sermons, if you will, uh, in terms of, uh, <laughs> if you want to associate it with your Protestant experience. Um, but so you're talking about Dick Cheney's, um, assert, basically building uh, an ideological or using ideology to justify the, the means of war and capitalism there. Right. Um, and both of those realities are realities. Yes. Um, and he says here in the liberation section, the church cannot seek, it's on page 110, uh, the church cannot seek only liberation of temporal nature. The church does not want to liberate poor people so that they can have more, um, but rather wants to them to be more. Okay. So now that, seems to be on one level speaking to the communists, right? Uh, we don't, the church, the point of redemption here isn't just to liberate people so they can be richer, right? Um, because Romero realizes that even if someone's richer, there's like a, a spiritual bankruptcy uh, that, that, that probably comes with the rich, with the wealth that comes, uh, that comes in that process. Right. But that's and also, also, he knows enough of the history of capitalism that he knows that as people become more affluent, often the people at the top are seizing more and more of the actual political power in the system uh, so that you get, you know, an oligarchy that nonetheless leaves the people comfortable and happy. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's also when he says the church does not want to liberate poor people so that they can have more. That's the basic argument for global capitalism is that it raises standards of living for poor people. Right. Um, and, right and that's right. one of the talking points. And so the ends 
the intended ends of capitalism, then the stated ends, at least, are exactly the same <laughs> in terms of what it's doing for poor people. Right. Uh, they're just sort of different means by which they're doing it. And Romero's identifying that just making somebody richer isn't saving them. Right. Uh, and, and there's something else that has to be going on there. Uh, and, and that's why that's why he transcends any kind of easy political answer that you might bring to um, to his work. And he whatever political persuasion you find yourself identifying with, he is saying something to make you question yourself and your, and your motivations. Right. And just in case, you know, that, uh, formulation, you know, seems to favor your favorite political, you know, ideology. I mean, it has some profound political implications that frankly are going to, you know, upend a lot of systems, whether they be capitalist or communist, because exactly to, to be more, uh, I mean, among many other things, uh, means to be a participant in rather than simply a passive victim of the human community. Right. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, in his salvation homily, uh, is it the kingdom? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the kingdom, right? Uh, the idea is that, you know, the salvation that we look forward to in the afterlife that we referenced earlier has profound implications politically, right? If in heaven, and this is true, by the way, uh, there are none who are grander than the other in the eyes of God, so likewise, the political implication of that is those same beings who one day are going to be in all and, you know, uh, who are going to be, you know, just simply assumed into the life of God, right, in the resurrection, those same people have the same sort of dignity before they are assumed into the life of God in their fullness. And therefore there is a political reason uh, to grant people more actual agency in the life of the community. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is where, again, you know, on one hand, I'm going to sound like, you know, an utter Marxist with the, you know, the, uh, ah, uh, what is it? The German ideology, right. Where he has this vision at the end of everyone, you know, farming in the morning and writing literary criticism in the evening. Yeah. Right. But then on the other hand, it's also going to sound a lot like a Patrick Deneen or a Coyle Neal. This is something where, you know, there is no overarching grand state uh, that is diminishing the agency of the local community, the, the human scale community, yeah. right? So, I mean, again, you know, uh, what's really interesting about Romero and what's really worthwhile about reading Romero is that once again, you know, uh, whatever system you're happy with in this moment, he's going to insist that you shouldn't be. Exactly. Right. Cause it's always about becoming more. Right. And so exactly in this way, I mean, he finds something in common with Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche, there's sort of the, the, the power hungry version of Nietzsche. Right. But for Nietzsche his his ultimate ends are for good. Right. He, he wants us to transcend the boundaries good for of, whom? Well, for the individual. Right. I mean, he's, I'm saying, um, which ones. <laughs> okay. All I'm trying to say is that there's a uh, um, a sense in which Nietzsche wants us to also um, break free of whatever ideological bonds are kind of constraining us to become. Now, Nietzsche is not aiming it at the same thing that Romero is aiming it at. Right. But they're both this kind right, of right. perpetual. And that's what I want to insist on. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, Nietzsche says that, you know, the great poison of Christianity is that insists that all human beings have dignity. Right, right. He says that's just hogwash. Right, I, exactly. I want to spit that out of my giant caterpillar mustache. Yeah, I, I, 
I don't mean to suggest otherwise. I'm not trying to, um, you know, reclaim Nietzsche for Christianity necessarily, but um, but the the idea of perpetually um, reinvestigating our our the way we come to our ideas is, is I think, um, a, a shared uh, piece of uh, ideology between those two as well. And I think it's great that you elevated Coil Neal of the uh, Book of Nature uh, podcast to Patrick Deneen status, like in, uh, linguistically in one sentence. So, <laughs> Well, I'm just trying to say nice things about Coil because he wrote an email that we're going to read on a listener feedback episode soon that uh, kind of lit into me. So I'm trying to, you know, emulate Romero here and respect Coil Neal's, you know, infinite personal dignity and not be uh, a jerk. Coyle has been on this show a few times. That he's a good friend of the show, and, and you know, I, politically we have no, almost nothing in common, right? But I, I totally respect respect Coyle, and he is actually probably going to kill me because I still haven't finished Dune, and he wants me to finish that so we can talk about it on his show. And um, this semester has just gotten out of hand, so I haven't quite finished it yet. So I'm I'm very close. I got you. Though. I got you. Um, <laughs> so Coyle, if you're listening, um, um, so a couple of uh, other things. One of another listener on Twitter, uh, Chris Buckley, uh, he actually posed a question. And um, I'm not sure how qualified I am to answer, but um, I think it's interesting to consider um, what or excuse me. American Catholics love to quote him, but as Pew Research indicates, few like to vote like him. Um, so describe this disconnect and what a truly Romero policymaker would look like for Catholic voters. Do you have any uh, sense of uh, what that would look like? First of all, I love this question because it raises some of the tensions that Romero is going to put us in, right? Yeah. Because on on one hand, the very act of voting itself uh, is an imposition on the 49% that voted against it. Mm. So I have a hunch that Romero would frown on that because you are imposing a way of life, mm. you know, by a kind of state coercion on a whole bunch of people who didn't vote for it, unless you've just got an overwhelming, almost consensus vote, in which case, you know, it's a different scenario. But in so many cases, uh, you know, this is imposing a way of life on people against their will by, you know, by definition. Right. So even on democracy. Hand, <laughs> yeah. What now? So even democracy falls within his. Uh, his I, I think it would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you know, uh, you've got the idea. And I think you're right, uh, Chris, that, you know, the strong preference for a sort of neoliberal economics, uh, you know, flies in the face of what Romero is about, because again, you know, the idea that, you know, supply and demand are, you know, these impersonal forces that, you know, if they claim a few victims along the way, well, ultimately it's better because, you know, we have to keep them appeased. Uh, that's also something that Romero wouldn't go in on. Now, one question that, you know, this, uh, this, you know, Twitter question, um, kind of leaves off the table, but I think it ought to be on the table is how we conceive of abortion policy, right? Mm. Uh, because, you know, that is one where the assertion of rights basically fly past each other on both sides, right? On the one hand, you know, uh, if you frame it in terms of reproductive health, then a certain kind of abortion policy is going to be an imposition of a way of life on people who need to have the freedom to exercise a reproductive health, right? On the other hand, if you go the other direction, there are entities who in most normal circumstances, are not tumors, but are children, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, I have a uterine tumor, I hope someday it becomes a child. It's, I'm having a baby, right? right. Uh, and so, you know, there is this monstrosity, if you consider it from that angle, which I do, of saying that the individual consumer decides whether this entity is a person or not. 
you know, that is precisely flying in the face of Romero. So the, I guess my answer to Chris Buckley would be that uh, both sides are in their own minds voting in a Romero way. Uh, but, you know, when the economics itself becomes the primary reason for voting, I utterly agree with Chris that, I mean, you know, this preference for the ideology of, you know, multinational cor- uh, capitalism, multinational corporate capitalism, that's what I was going for, yeah. uh, I mean, is by definition elevating these non-human entities to a position of priority over the human person. Yeah. So I just talked way too long, Danny. What do you got on that? No, I, I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I think that just in, in just the same way that in Romero's time, his ideas both drew from and conflicted with uh, left-right dichotomies, I think that probably will, I mean, it makes sense that that would hold in any era, right? Um, if his if his idea is to um, ultimately respect the individual um, dignity of individual people, then any sort of political act is a kind of violence upon <laughs> on some person somewhere, right? And so- And uh, also political inaction yes. is a political violence on people. Yes. And again, that's the twin sins, right? Yeah. I mean, this is why uh, Romero, again, is interesting because on the one hand, the quietism of the person that says, you know, everything in politics is going to corrupt me. So therefore I just need to, you know, mind my soul. He's not going to allow for that because, you know, the dignity of the person doesn't begin after they die. Right. On the other hand, he's also going to say that, you know, a refusal to repent of your own sins to say that, you know, because the other people are so wretched, I can be as nasty as I want to be. He's not going to stand for that either because he believes in the soul and the soul can be better or worse. And therefore he's going to be a good Catholic priest on this score. So again, you know, I mean, uh, I I feel myself shading almost into a Michael Farmer life is guilt position here. And it's not quite what Romero's after here. But there's certainly some family resemblances. Yeah, you have that last thing you were talking about the others, right? Uh, you have a quote highlighted here um, from page 87. Um, uh, always yeah, entertain from the, the what is that? The church. The church. Homily. Yeah. Uh, do you want um, do you want to read that that passage and and talk about what? Because it, it's it's related to this. Uh, it's something about like there is dignity outside of the church, even right? And and you have to consider the fact that that might even be more dignified than than you in the church, right? Right. Right. Uh, let me find it here on eighty seven. Sorry, I, know I marked that page. And I, now is it towards the top, towards the bottom? I uh, I sprung that upon you. Um. <laughs> um Oh, okay. It's a paraphrase. So that's why I'm not finding the word always. Yes. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's see here. I'll just start with this paragraph. How much goodness, how much truth, how much honesty there is beyond our Christian borders. Let us respect this because often we think that we're the best there is in the world just because we're in the church. Who knows? Who knows whether those of us in the church are in fact less good, less noble, less human than those outside the church who are already prepared for the gospel and are waiting with a nobility that is truly worthy of receiving Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes on to make the, the, the comparison, the gospel will then reach the fertile soil, the fertile earth, excuse me, that St. Paul speaks of. Um, and so there, there is a way in which um, the church is by being isolationist um, has a chance of cutting off its future growth. I mean, Paul himself was the biggest persecutor of the church who was sort of, I mean, literally outside the church. Right. And then, but his position outside the church somehow made him a 
the ideal vehicle for the, promulgating the gospel um, um, once he was sort of entered in. And so there is this outward looking argument that he's making for the church to, to not, it's an anti-Benedict option, uh, I think is uh, in, in a lot of ways. I know that you you like that book more than I do. But. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, you know, let me think about, think on that for a moment, but I mean, to follow up with your other point, uh, you know, this is again, a product of his own moment, right? Because, uh, in another part of the book, you know, he says that everyone is saying the church is communist. And, you know, the first thing I thought was, man, wh- what kind of a world are, are you living in where people <laughs> think the church is communist? Right. Because uh, that, that's the, the church gets accused of a lot of things in 2018 in America. Communism ain't one of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, you know, the hardcore materialists uh, among the Communist Party are going to be very suspicious of that church. Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, in this, you know, homily called the church, you know, what he wants is for those within the church, the parishioners, uh, to live distinctively, to be sure, because, again, you know, the teaching of the church will keep us from turning ideology into a human being consuming God. Mm. But on the other hand, we should never shut our eyes to the possibility that without knowing it, uh, and that's the phrase that I, w- I would probably add to Romero's analysis here, without knowing it or even in defiance of it, sometimes they end up being Jesus better than we do. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a great way to put it. And, and going back to his moment at the time, I read somewhere, um, I bookmarked some things I'll put in the show notes, um, some articles, but it might be in one of these articles that I read. Uh, that at the time, people were scrawling graffiti on uh, walls that said, be a patriot, kill a priest, right? And so there was a, a really um, interesting form of nationalism that identified the priesthood as this sort of communist threat to you know, El Salvador and or Salvador and, you know, statehood. And, and so um, it's, it's a really interesting political moment that he was living in, as you said. Um, 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 one other thing, so I guess to speak to that, this political, so for so long, for my entire lifetime, the evangelical church, let's just call it that, um, <laughs> which, you know, I'm with Michael Farmer. Uh, I don't, use that term for myself anymore. Right. Um, I still go to churches, a church where people would, um, and I have no problem doing that. I'm not an ex evangelical. I, which I think is the more I think about that, the stupider I think it is because if you're going to be something, don't name yourself by what you are not right. Kind of, I just feel like <laughs> there's some serious daddy issues there. I think if you're calling yourself an ex evangelical, um, but, uh, and I'm sorry if that's offensive to you. Um, please, scold me, I probably deserve it. But um, for my entire life, though, that church has been politically active within kind of a partisan politics structure, right? Um, And so, and obviously, I'm talking about Republican, you know, voting patterns, okay? Sure, sure. And so, um, now I I detect, and probably because of the backlash to Trump, there's this movement, and and very dear friends of mine are, are taking part of this, this, the church can't be political in any way, right? There's this sort of pendulum swing the other direction and this like utter withdrawal from politics, even more so than what um, Rod Dreher is calling for, because he's not calling for 
he's calling for a withdrawal from kind of national politics, but a, I mean, at least a still a, a active engagement with more local politics, right? Um, right, right. But you have this um, um, other form of withdrawal that people are arguing for that pe- the church should not be political at all, right? And Again, Romero has something negative to say about that, right? Um, and this is in the, the homily called The Way. Um, Dear brothers, do not betray your service. Uh, this is on page 69 uh, to this ministry of God's word. It is very easy to be servants of the world without disturbing the world in any way. We can spiritualize our words so they lack any commitment to history. Again, Marxist terms right here. Um, we can speak words that sound good in any part of the world because they say nothing about the world. Such words create no problems. They give rise to no conflicts. The word that characterizes the authentic church is the word that causes conflicts and persecutions, is the searing word of the prophets that announces and denounces. It announces the marvelous works of God so that people will believe and worship God, and it denounces the sins of those who oppose God's kingdom. Um, And so that's like a clear call for political speech that actually causes conflict, right? Uh, And and which is a, a, a form of politics. Now, I'm not one to argue for an engagement with party politics. I think that is like another I don't think that abandoning the Republican ship for the Democratic ship is the is is the proper response to right the wrongs of the past. But I also don't think abandoning politics altogether is the is the right call. I think what he's calling for here is much more in line with what I'm talking about. It's a political engagement that kind of transcend. It's it's about organizing for goals. It, it has nothing really to do with party power. Right, right. And, you know, the temptation here is to, you know, take that coalition model that really drives the Democratic and Republican parties that in order to achieve these limited ends, we have to really sell out for in in, in the good sense and the bad sense yeah. uh, to this, you know, larger coalition of libertarians and, you know, foreign policy interventionists and, you know, cultural traditionalists and so on and so forth or on the other side you know in order to get better public schools we need to be more enthusiastic than anyone else about more abortions right (laughs) and you know uh i i think you're right that i mean romero would have a suspicion of the american you know coalition model of party involvement right um and i had something else i was going to say here and i've just forgotten it danny so i apologize no that's okay Um, (laughs) um I uh, go go on if if I remember it I'll say it. Yeah, no no, it's just all I want to say is that um for the, I think he has something to say for the politically committed and I think he's trying to say that basically a political non-commitment is a political commitment, right? It's a political commitment to the status quo that um, shows a lack of faith in in the ability of uh, of uh, of human beings to impact like divine change within the systems that we have here um, today. Right. And honestly, I mean, you know, a, a sense of history would be useful here because I mean, you know, it really wasn't that long ago, maybe 130 years ago that the same people who were, and I guess it'd have to go back farther than 130, let's say 160 years ago, that the same people who were abolitionists for slavery were also the people who were in favor of temperance when it came to saloons yeah. and the same people who were in favor of women's suffrage yeah. on the feminist question and the same people who were in favor of some kind of pacifism on foreign policy matters and the same people who were in favor of some kind of socialism 
when it comes to the distribution of wealth, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, one thing that I think, you know, straight jackets our imagination is to say that, you know, to take one of those, you know, noble aims, I would call them, uh, is to also go along with every other plank of the faction's platform, right? So, I mean, uh, if you happen to be anti-abortion as I am, it doesn't necessarily also mean that you're a military interventionist. Right. And, you know, to be, you know, some kind of socialist economically, which I am, doesn't also mean that you're in favor of, you know, pursuing into the cracks and into the rat holes every religious minority until they can't actually have a religious community anymore. Right. Even though those tend to go together in American politics as constituted within the last 40 years, that's not the only possibility. And I think you're right, Danny, that I mean, this lack of imagination uh, is one of the many ways that, you know, Romero can be of help to American Christians. What if you had someone who was so personalist that he won't be a communist or an anti-communist? Right. <laughs> well, the answer is you get Romero, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. We're utterly, we have no historical like uh, perspective to bring to political questions right now. And I find this really strongly just as an aside when I teach, I mean, American literature from like the middle part of the century, if I'm teaching them. Which century? Uh, the, uh, the 20th century, excuse me. Okay, thank um, you. <laughs> from the middle part of the 20th century. Um, if I'm teaching like Lionel Trilling, for example, um, I start talking about the politics and it's like they can't understand that it was not just liberal and conservative. You sort of had com- you had socialists, you had communists who hated each other. <laughs> you had this like a oh, sure, d- diverse sure. array of political conversation. And and Eugene, Eugene Debs was you know running as a socialist candidate for president and got millions of votes, right? And so uh, there's a, there's like a, such a lack of historical knowledge about the. A, a political compl- a complication of the political system that our two party system has just sort of watered down into these two buckets that uh, maybe that paradigm is breaking down now and we'll be able to find some new coalitions. <laughs> right. and honestly, I, I think and this is what I was trying to say earlier, what I was trying to remember what I was going to say earlier. I think that might be part of the root of the movement towards being apolitical, which is not a new movement. I no, mean, you sure. know, I was hearing that when I was in high school 150 years ago. Uh, but, you know, the idea is that, you know, to be political means to be in the corner of one of the parties, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you are neither pro-abortion to where you would applaud when someone gets on stage and behind a microphone says, I had an abortion. Yeah. Yay. Okay. That I find revolting. I also find revolting the idea that, you know, we should celebrate when we drop the mother of all bombs on a small town in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, that eliminates all the political possibilities, doesn't it? Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, that's where, again, you know, some more historical imagination, whether it be Oscar Romero, whether it be William Jennings Bryan, whether it be, you know, any of these fit Eugene Debs, like you just talked about, you know, I, I think that that historical education and, you know, I, I can turn anything into a pitch for the liberal arts. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that strong historical education is something that American Christians need so that we know that the bounds of our own experience are not the bounds of the possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that um, it's, it's something that I get out of this book. Uh, I want to start uh, pushing towards the end here. I, I, we haven't mentioned the interspersal diary entries uh, into this uh, in this book. What, what did you make of the effect of, of combining these two things? It's basically a homily, diary entry, homily, diary entry. 
Right, right. So, I mean, you know, just, just to give a sense of the form of the book, you know, the homilies are printed just as you would see them in any book, uh, you know, a nice clean font. The diary entries, you know, are on pages that are, you know, printed as, you know, uh, quasi photographs, you know, often with a pen at the bottom in a sort of handwriting font. His I don't glasses think this is actually, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it was actually, you know, Romero's handwriting that we're seeing, but well, it's, in it's English. more readable. So that's good. <laughs> it's in English for one thing, right? So. <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> wow. I, and I skated right past the obvious. Right. Um, but, you know, in between these homilies, uh, you get entries from Romero's diary. And I mean, they are about, you know, very real events on the ground. Uh, people who have been assassinated by anti-communist forces, encroachment of the communists themselves. You know, just a lot of the history of violence that Romero was living in the middle of. And it gives you a sense as you read along that, you know, these calls for personalism, these calls, you know, to resist ideology. Uh, these are not things that come at no cost to Romero. Uh, his life and his friends, his family, the people around him, the people that he ministers to are under perpetual threat of real automatic weapon violence yeah. uh, whenever they preach these things. So, I mean, it, it certainly le- lends uh, some gravity to what he's talking about. And it also lends some gravity to, you know, the passage, Danny, where he says that the only kind of triumph that's really going to be a triumph is a triumph of life over death, right? Yeah. yeah. This is not something where, you know, he is entertaining communism as some kind of, you know, abstract, you know, John Lennon song reality. (laughs) This is, you know, okay, if these guys with the AK-47s beat these guys with the M-16s, we're going to be in a communist situation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and it I mean those I think emphasize the the pointlessness and the the of of an anti-political stance, right? I mean his his sermons, his homilies and his his theology was directly related to political realities on the ground, right? And so I mean and and so and the, it is always rooted in the infinite dignity of the human soul, right? At, and at I know I, I keep hammering away at no, that Danny, but I mean right. There are some listeners who, whenever you hear, you know, sermons have to be political, they're going to say, well, that's at the neglect of the infinite soul. No, this is political because of the infinite soul. It's an amazing synthesis of all these things. Um, you know, I want to go back real quickly before I um, get to the end here. Marcus Palamas, at the end, second half of his question, um, he poses something that's really fascinating to me, an interesting lens, he says, that may enrich the conversation about liberation theology versus Orthodox Catholic theology might be James K.A. Smith's liturgy models um, model. And I find that to be fascinating. I had the great pleasure a couple of weeks ago of seeing um, James Smith uh, in uh, Lancaster. He he gave a, a talk and I got to sit right up front and got my picture taken with him and everything. And it was kind of awesome. He was super nice and uh, actually got to talk with him for a minute. And uh, so he wasn't on Twitter at the time. No, 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 he was not. He was, unless he was really good at it. Yeah. He was, he was there with us. No, I mean, do you follow him on Twitter at all? I do. I do. Yeah. He He, he is one of those people (laughs) who should stay off Twitter because he's a much more interesting and pleasant person when he's not on Twitter. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. That's possible. That's definitely possible. I was a little afraid of him until I got up and talked to him and he was very, very nice. Um, But and I think that Marcus's point is an interesting one because at that moment, and I don't have an articulated answer. I'm probably going to bumble around this a little bit, but I, when I was listening to him talk, I was wondering at the time if what his idea is, which is essentially that we don't like, um, we can't 
really know things apart from our embodied experience. And so the way that we kind of go through our lives and the habits that are formed through the way we inhabit spaces and the way that we are sort of um, oriented by worship practices, liturgical practices, which he broadly defines as even going to a mall or a sporting events, those kinds of just day-to-day things create um, ideological positions in our head through which we then interpret the world. Um, uh, and, and so uh, am I, you, you seem like you're going to add or subtract something. From oh, what yeah, I just yeah. said. No, 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 I'm not going to subtract anything. <laughs> I'm just going to say that, I mean, this doesn't have to be speculative either because a few years later in Chile, in the late days of the Pinochet regime, uh, there actually were uh, organized moments of liturgical resistance on the part of the Catholic Church to the Pinochet regime. Okay. And what they would do, uh, and this is all detailed in the book uh, Torture and Eucharist by uh, William T. Cavanaugh. It's a book that I can't recommend highly enough. I mean, if you ever wonder what a thoroughgoing theological engagement with politics looks like, start with that book, I'll Torture p- and Eucharist. I'll put it, put it in the, the show, show notes. notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but some of the things they would do, one... Uh, if you worked in a torture chamber, they would excommunicate you. Mm. Number two, uh, when people got disappeared, which was the practice of the Pinochet regime as right. well as of the anti-communists in El Salvador, they would have flash requiems. You know, it was illegal to have a funeral for these people who got disappeared because they weren't officially dead. Ah. And also because part of the terror that the regime was instituting was the lack of knowledge whether the person was dead or not. Right. They would get together, set a time, And they would chant a requiem mass at triple speed in a public square. And then as the police were getting together to start arresting people, they would melt into the crowd. Mm. So, I mean, you know, they were saying prayers for the souls of the dead that the regime was killing in a public area where everyone knew the regime was killing them. Yeah. And then, you know, that was, you know, one of their acts of resistance. Right. And there's a dozen more things that, you know, William T. Cavanaugh outlines in that book. Uh, But, you know, I I think that, you know, Marcus is right here that, you know, some of the most impressive uh, and some of the most faithful responses to this kind of ideological regime really do happen in that act of liturgy. Uh, And it's because, you know, I mean, this is the celebration of a crucified Christ who was a human being and in that humanity had that infinite dignity of the human being, right? You know, a lot of times... We think of the crime of the crucifixion, rightly, as killing God, right? And that's true. I mean, Jesus is the presence of God in human form, you know. It's also true that Jesus is the presence of humanity in a way that we have to pay attention to. We cannot ignore. So we see a regime called the Roman Empire spectacularly, and I'm using that adverb technically, right? In a spectacular moment as a spectacle murdering a human being in order to advance the ideology that's called Rome. Exactly. In the same way, El Salvador and Chile are murdering people in the name of anti-communism. And, you know, both the Chilean bishops and Bishop Romero resist that. So, I mean, I think he's absolutely right that, I mean, uh, in a very different way than the resistance of the shopping mall in the NFL pregame. Yeah. But in a way that's definitely analogous there is a liturgical resistance to the regime there. Yeah. And and I was thinking at the time, the one thing I'll sort of add to that, I was listening to James Smith this last time. I think that 
what he's doing, maybe it's because he emphasized how much of Foucault he sort of relies on in this project, the sort of embodied practice of replicating power, kind of, right? Um, sure, sure. Um, I mean, this made me think that what he's ultimately doing is a materialist critique of, I mean, it's in that way, it shares something with a Marxist critique uh, of society. But like Romero, it's not aimed at material ends. It's aimed at this sort of immaterial um, soul building, right? And so I think that that's a way in which um, that James Smith's liter- cultural liturgies project, um, and there all three books are out now, and he has a kind of a pop version of it called "You Are What You Love," um, that I bought but haven't read yet. Um, my wife is reading it's it. It's a right good now. book. You got to yeah. take it on. Yeah, she, it's at home. My, when my wife's done, I'll read it. But um, the, there's a um, uh, I, I sense in which I think there's a, a correlation between what Romero was actually doing and why it kind of looks like a Marxist critique of the world and because it shares some similarities but it's the aims of both projects are kind of um, while they might be materialist in their analysis they're not materialist in their goals and Um, theologically this makes sense because you know we worship a God who is spirit that's the gospel of John and also a God who creates material reality and says it is very good so I mean both of those realities are realities over which God rightly claims authority. Uh, so it's not as if we can dispose of one and let it go wherever it wants to go. I mean, all of them, l- let me back that up, you know, agents and actions, right? Kenneth Burke, right. <laughs> God rightly asserts authority over body and soul and world and politics. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, that's, that's brilliant. Um, and so I mean, just, I want to kind of wrap this up now then. Um, one of the great things for me about the show is the community that like comes out of it. And I have no idea. I've never asked you for download stats about this show. <laughs> I just, I, if you don't know, I send the show off to Nathan and he does all the techie stuff. Um, I really don't know how many people listen to the show, but um, the people who do contact me about the show really add a lot to my life and my, really my understanding of what I'm um, of my own kind of uh, thoughts. Like, and I feel like, you guys know me better than I know myself. And so like I talk about things in abstract ways, but, and so Kristen Philippic says here, interview the Bruderhof people. <laughs> Because that's what you think, right? And, and so, and that gets me on this path. And I have political ideas that uh, I'm not quite got a grasp on. And Susanna Black says, "Here, read this book about Oscar Romero," <laughs> because that's that's where you're really at, right? And, and so, I feel like it's kind of a beautiful thing. So, uh, if you uh, are listening to the show, um, those of you, um, and you have something to say to me, I am more than happy to uh, to take uh, account of what you're saying. I learn a lot about the world and myself um, through the interactions I have with you guys and with nathan um gilmore here uh nathan thanks so much for joining me for the show hey thanks danny for having me on and uh listeners if i have uh used too much you know sort of technical catholic social teaching jargon or if i've misused it as i've been accused of doing in other conversations that involve catholicism uh then you know feel free to write to the christian humanist at gmail.com if you want to yell at me don't <laughs> write at danny if you're going to yell at me just you know come at me <laughs> uh, yell at me too i i do dumb things all the time so yeah uh, the facebook page is a great 
public forum, a spectacular forum for you to flagellate me in public. So, <laughs> there um, you go. <laughs> yes, uh, it's uh, I'm more than willing to do it. And I do. I really do love the conversation. Um, and as always, there's the iTunes uh, rating and review system. Um, please do remember to go there and uh, leave a nice review or a bad one, I guess. I guess nicer ones will be better for me in the end. But uh, uh, my my fragile ego. But uh, but the um, uh, but the point is that alerts more people to our existence. And uh, please do share the show with your friends. Uh, and if you have anything to say, you are more than welcome to contact me. Um, the Facebook page is a great place. We also have a website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com where you can uh, put comments on individual show notes and whatnot. I will add a couple of things to the show notes, uh, torture and the Eucharist. Is that what it's called? Torture and Eucharist. Yeah, not, no definite article, just torture and Eucharist. Okay. I'm going to add that link. Uh, I have some articles already. And while you were describing um, the Chilean um, disappearances, it reminded me of a, of a great little novel by Nathan Englander um, called um, Ministry of Special Cases um, that I'll put a link to that. It's a, it's a really great novel about, uh, a Jewish community actually in the midst of all of that um, uh, horror and, and terror um, imposed by a, a right-wing government there. So um, it's, a, it's a wonderful little book. So um, I have nothing else to add. Uh, thank you again to everybody who had a part in uh, the show, Plow Publishing. Thanks so much for the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's going to hold a very special place on my shelf uh, from, from now on. Uh, Nathan, thank you for joining me. Um, let me do make one more pitch for if you are in higher education at all, or even secondary education or primary, uh, the Mount Aloysius College uh, teaching conference. Uh, I actually uh, were hosting a teaching conference in October. The uh, deadline for submissions is May 13th or 18th, I think. I'll put a link to that uh, call for papers in the show notes, but it is a, um, um, a, uh, a really cool opportunity to learn from other people who are interested in education. It will be hosted here. I'll be happy to, uh, uh, I'd be love to meet people who might listen to the show. And if you're anywhere close, I'd love to meet you. So, um, and even I think if you're not interested in presenting, there'll be sort of round table discussions that you can take part in. So um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes and, uh, and uh, it'd be awesome to meet a few people there. So um, Nathan McGee, or, uh, Nathan McGee, Nathan Gilmore, <laughs> uh, thank you so much again for, uh, for joining me uh, and go listen to the Christian Humanist Podcast. You'll learn a lot every week.